You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 28th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show... We have many options for Venezuela, including a possible military option if necessary. This from President Trump in 2017. Today, things look dicier than ever for President Maduro, but did Venezuela's opposition leader secretly conspire with America to trigger the latest crisis? Meanwhile, Russia denies sending mercenaries to Venezuela to prop up the embattled regime of President Maduro. My guests Brian Klass and Stephen Diaz will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... As Theresa May prepares for yet another vote on Britain's withdrawal from the EU, how is the ongoing saga affecting the thousands of European nationals living in the UK? All that, plus the former boss of the Starbucks coffee chain, is thinking of standing in the 2020 US presidential election. Does it follow that billionaire businessmen make good presidents? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Brian Klass, who's Assistant Professor in Global Politics at the University College London. He's also a Washington Post columnist and the Russia analyst and writer and broadcaster Stephen Diehl. Men of many talents. Welcome both of you to the studio. Now, the United States has warned Venezuela that any threats against US diplomats or the opposition leader Juan Guaido will be met with a significant response. Mr Guaido was called on Venezuelans to take to the, has called on Venezuelans to take to the streets in protest protest against President Nicolas Maduro, who's governed the country since 2013. A week ago, Mr Guaido declared himself the interim president in a move which earned him the backing of Washington and several European countries. How events will play out is anyone's guess, but there are reports that Mr Guaido had secretly worked with Donald Trump's government to plan the current crisis. So the big question, are these allegations plausible and should we trust the source? Brian? Well, I mean, I think it's very difficult in any of these situations to know what's happening. But I I do think that there is plausibility to them simply because uh, of the history that the United States has in in Latin America. That being said, I mean, I think this is it's a very odd dynamic because this is Maduro is the only authoritarian strongman or despot in the world that Donald Trump does not love. And so, you know, it's it's. It's done for all the wrong reasons, right? I mean, it's clear that Trump does not care one ounce about democracy, about human rights. Uh, I mean, just anecdotally, he's tweeted. I, I, I looked this up at one point uh, and, and aggregated them, and he's tweeted 276 times about crowd size and twice about human rights. So, you know, this is not a man who's doing this for the right reasons. But could it produce a good outcome? That's the big question. I am not a Maduro fan because he's been chipping away at democracy in Latin America, or sorry, in Venezuela specifically, for a very long time and has been, you know, one of the major authoritarians in, in Latin America. And so you, you sort of have this odd dynamic where you create strange bedfellows. People who oppose Donald Trump automatically support Maduro. The same happened, by the way, when the U.S. bombed Syria, and all of a sudden people were saying Assad is great, and it's like, no, he's not. So, so I think that there's a separate question here from what's going on behind the scenes versus making sure that we're clear that Maduro is not a friend of democracy. Okay. 
Stephen. I think uh, a couple of things I thought Brian said they're very interesting I mean uh, I love the way you aggregated the tweets and yes two on human rights was it 276? 276 crowds crowd, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that um, it, it, it just shows also this this idea that if well you know if you're not with me you're against me or if you're not against me you're with me or something I, mm. I mean um, uh, this this uh, this I don't know what it, whether it's it's not exactly an alliance, but it's building up. But you know, you you have a strange number of countries speaking out against Maduro. I mean, you know, European countries. Why aren't European countries keeping out of it? Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I don't care about human rights, but I'm saying you know, it's it, it's it's something that surely they're not going to get involved with. That you know, we're, if we're talking about the word military has been mentioned in a U.S. context, and that's not beyond the bounds of possibility. But European countries, European countries aren't going to get involved. Military in a military sense, um, in an economic sense. I mean, how do you how do you, you don't put sanctions on a country that's got a, a million percent inflation? It, it just it it seems a strange mix, and there is I just I just feel there's so much going on behind mm. the scenes that um, you know we're, something is going to leap out at us soon. A strange mix, yes, but. Uh Let's look at this in terms of ulterior motives, because we know, for example, that one of the countries which appears to be supporting the United States on this is Mexico. And of course, there are trade negotiations at stake. So is there a hope that perhaps by pandering to Donald Trump on this, that someone somewhere may rest favourable deals going forward, that um, a favour is not forgotten, you will be rewarded? I mean, I think there's always speculation around these types of things. But anybody who has paid attention to the last two years and thought that Trump will actually go to bat for you when the time comes is just sorely mistaken. I mean, this is every single person is in, in his administration who has gone on the new, you know, the nightly news and carried water for his lies has gotten just savaged on Twitter as soon as he sours on them. And so every international player sees the same thing. I mean, you know, Macron tried. He tried to curry favor by rolling out the red carpet in Paris for Trump. I mean, you know, when push came to shove, the tariffs still went on, on France and he then, you know, completely attacked Macron on Twitter. So it's, all of this is is to say that, yes, there could be some geopolitical gamesmanship going on. But I think that more to the point, it's about, you know, Trump Trump is trying to do two things here. He's trying to to push the spotlight away from the domestic angle, which is extremely damaging. So to it's him. the smoking and mirrors game at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the, the, all the domestic news for Trump is terrible right now. And the second thing is that he Maduro is is slightly different from some of the other authoritarians in that he is a, f- a far left-wing authoritarian and Trump very much wants to have a far right-wing authoritarian in place which is why he applauded Bolsonaro and uh, in Brazil and sent you know a delegation to congratulate him so so to me this is much more about ideological positioning than it is as i said about democracy and human rights and that's why it's maybe a mistake to to read too much into Mexico's uh, play you know role in this mm. but but Stephen let, let's let's follow up a point here because Nicolas Maduro has always said in defence of himself, look, you know, I'm trying to do the best here and I've got gringos interfering. Now, this is not my word. This is a word that he has been using. And when he's when he's using that word, he's applying it to the United States. The fact that you've got America coming down heavily in favour of the opposition, doesn't that really shore up his point? And doesn't that make him a more determined to, to stick in? And also the the military to back him, because without the military, he's really nothing. And they don't appear to be willing to, to jump ship at the moment. Indeed. I mean, the choice of language is interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's gringo is, a, is a, it's one of those 
historic but rather emotive words as well and um uh, it's you know there's um i mean i see this with russia you know what what does putin do to try and get people on his side he he pro- projects the idea that everyone else out there is out to get him um and that that's quite a good way of uh, of getting people on your side for a while i mean think back to 1982 and the falklands crisis um you know argentina took the falklands uh, because there was domestic crisis at home and it deflected attention so this is this is an old tactic um it often doesn't last for very long um but i what i found interesting on that the military angle i mean the fact that it's the the you know the military attache in washington who apparently has defected um uh is that a sign of discontent wider discontent within the venezuelan military um in which case maduro might be um on hiding to nothing um or is it or is there simply going to be a split and if there's a split between sides in who, who have weapons, then you could be seeing a very serious situation. Yeah, so the inference there that we could have some kind of a civil war. But at the end of the day, Brian, there is the argument that if it comes to that, it's America which effectively lit the fuse. And could that put America in the position where it has to deepen its involvement? And wouldn't the public have a say in that? Because America does have a patchy history in Latin America. And Mr. Trump has basically said America first, and he's taken a pretty isolationist perspective in some ways. So getting involved in this would betray the aspirations of the base, surely. Yeah, I mean, so I think I, I think there's many different things going on with Trump's involvement in Venezuela. I think w- what we first have to be clear about is it can simultaneously be true that the U.S. is meddling in Venezuela, and it can be true that there is massive popular discontent against Maduro's regime and genuine protests. I mean, somebody shared a picture on Twitter that I thought was very funny where they had tens of thousands of people in the streets and said, wow, look at all the CIA agents. I mean, you know, at some point you, you can as- ascribe too much causality to U.S. foreign policy in a, in a regime that genuinely has has reasons to oppose, you know, there's reasons to oppose the Venezuelan re- uh, regime. But that being said, yeah, I mean, the, the, the real problem here is that even with the most skilled diplomat, this is a very fraught situation. It's one that is potentially prone to violence. Donald Trump doesn't know anything about Venezuela. And so to put somebody like him who's impulsive, erratic, and ignorant into a situation that, as you say, is a lit fuse, that's what really scares me. It's not that the U.S. involvement is bad. It's that Trump himself is just unaware of the the stakes involved. Okay, well, there's another side to this story because Russia has denied reports. It sent mercenaries into the, into Venezuela to protect Nicolas Maduro against a possible coup attempt. Now, Moscow says the United States has violated Venezuela's sovereignty by throwing its weight behind the opposition leader, Juan Guaido. So how far would Russia go to protect its staunchest ally in Latin America? Stephen, that's your bailiwick. I mean, just how far do you think Mr Putin will take it? I, I think that if they haven't already sent in some uh, disguised, shall we say, military advisers, um, then they'll be about to do it. Mm. Do, you think, be... do you think it's likely they have? Or would they follow the playbook from Syria, for example, because, and, and also Ukraine, where they sent in people who were supposedly volunteers? Yeah, I mean, Ukraine is, is a very different um, kettle of fish because it's right on Russia's doorstep. But um, Russia has, in recent months, shown support for Maduro. They, they've, you know, they've flown their bombers in there. They've, um, Putin has spoken out quite a lot. They've met um, on a couple of occasions recently and Putin and Maduro. Um, Maduro was in Moscow not long ago. Um, So Moscow has made it clear that uh, Venezuela is part of its sphere of influence if you like in uh, in latin america um so they what, what would really surprise me would be if russia sort of sat just sat back and did nothing um 
obviously, as I say, they can't do a Ukraine situation. They can't send in thousands and thousands of troops. Um, but if they haven't already sent something, I'd, I'd very, be very surprised. That would just fit the pattern. I mean, they've, right. you know, they've declared their support for this guy. Um, Trump has, has, has given them an in, as it were, by threatening, using threatening language. Um, and they say, well, you know, we're, they, they effectively see themselves as an ally of Maduro. Therefore, um, sending advisors uh, seems to me, from Moscow's point of view, a logical step. Right. So tactically, Brian, Mr. Trump did actually make a mistake when he gave his support to the opposition leader and basically warned off uh, the, the, well, warned off Nicolas Maduro. He, he, as, as, as Stephen said, he gave the Russians away and then they're, they're not going to steer a gift horse in the mouth on this. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to say that it's a mistake already because in some ways opposition movements that are trying to unseat, uh, you know, a semi-authoritarian or authoritarian leader do need international legitimacy. I mean, the, the U.S. sometimes has played a role where that legitimacy comes from them. Um, other times it can be counterproductive. As I say, you know, this is something where if it was a skilled diplomat that was sort of guiding the ship, then there would be ways in which the U.S. could legitimately and productively support the opposition. But there is the argument that the skilled diplomat, so to speak, is John Bolton. He may be yeah. a hawk, but this is a guy who's worked the U.N. circuit for a number of years. Yeah, and Elliot Abrams, who's just been brought in too, who's also, you know, was involved with, with Reagan in Latin America. So there's, there's, there's serious baggage here. I'm not trying to say that there's not. I'm just, I'm just saying that, you know... To say it's a mistake before anything has really kicked off, it's 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 too early to say. Um, that being said, you know, Trump's threats of violence and sort of saying we have all options on the table could make this much more dangerous than it otherwise would. Because all of a sudden when military intervention becomes a possibility, uh, it really raises tensions within Venezuela's military, for example. And that can create very dangerous dynamics for coups or for splinter movements or for a massive crackdown with repression. That's what often happens when these things spiral, spiral mm. out of control. So I hope they don't happen. OK, Stephen, your response to that, please. Yeah, I mean, of course, what it also does, um, if I may sort of put, put on the Russia hat again is that it gives Putin a great chance to uh, talk talk in the language of whataboutism, which he likes so much. So, you know, you're criticizing us for Ukraine or Syria. You know, what about America? You know, what about what they're doing in in Latin America, in Venezuela? Um, so, that looking at it from Moscow's point of view, you know, they 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 must be almost rubbing their hands with glee because they've got a, a big example to be able to say, look, you see, everyone does it. The fact that you know they go into uh, to, to, to stop Ukraine becoming closer to Europe, to stop Ukraine becoming more democratic, uh, and um, whether or not America's going in to make <laughs> Venezuela more democratic, um, we've already said, is unlikely. But um, certainly they are acting against uh, an authoritarian dictator in Maduro. Mm. So there are there are differences, but but Russia will play down those and play up the well. There you are, you see. You know the Americans do it. Why shouldn't we? Mm, although they do have an ulterior motive, because let's not forget that they have invested heavily in Venezuela, haven't they, Brian? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is their guy. Um, but, you know, great power politics in Venezuela is not a good recipe um, for stability. I mean, that's just at the end of the day, you don't want to have another clash. And I think you're absolutely right. This is going to be a classic example of whataboutism if there is an intervention. Right now, it's saber rattling. And so the question is, you know, is there actually bite to this or is it just, uh, you know, an empty threat? I mean, look, this is this is the era of the proxy war. We've seen that phenomenon being played out in Syria and Yemen. So how worried should we be about Venezuela? Because the, the vibe that you're both giving off is that, look, this country stands on the edge of something which is potentially very, very dangerous. So 
Could it mutate into a proxy crisis that pitches two superpowers against each other via a sitting president, an opposition leader and perhaps other parts of the, the opposition groups that have broken away? Certainly the, uh, the, the language that's, that's flying around at the moment suggests that it, uh, it could. Um, and if, as we've been saying, you know, if the Americans send in troops, then that really does ratchet it up a lot more. Uh, and it will be very interesting then to see the Russian response and, and whether Russia will openly send um, advisors or more likely um, military equipment. And of course, if you again they get Russian military equipment going in 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 vast numbers, which is which is possible, you know, it's it's okay, it's not next door, but they can still ship them out there, um, tanks, guns, whatever. Um, then that really does lead to a very serious uh, situation. Mm. I mean, obviously, none of us know if, if it comes to that, but let's let's err on the side of pessimism for one moment. If it did, then what pressure would that put? on these countries who are backing the opposition leader to somehow throw in their tuppence halfpenny worth because again it puts Donald Trump in a slightly awkward position because on the one hand he's been saying to the Europeans and various others you're not actually doing enough to step up to the plate with NATO and then all of a sudden he's actually saying to these guys come on help me out here if it comes to that well i mean i think as we've seen with the government shutdown uh, donald trump's bluff can be called but he really doesn't like it being called and so the question here is if he says i stand with the opposition if you crack down on the opposition we will intervene you know mass street protests can get out of hand so, so can mass street protests that are backed by splinter groups from within the military who are upset at the direction of the country so if things go very badly Trump's bluff could be called where, where there could be bloodshed towards the opposition, and that would be a very dangerous situation, both for Venezuela and for international security. But what about the American public in this? Because, look, before, and I'd like to throw this open to both of you, I talked about the base. And could, could this fear of alienating the base, given that uh, they feel that they've been let down so far on the whole issue of the wall, etc., could that act perhaps as some sort of a break, a restraint on Donald Trump, because this man is very sensitive to the polls and how he stands. Because he does say he's a genius. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, I think that there's the base has really interesting tendencies. When you ask them questions in polls about that effectively are proxies for isolationism, they tend to support them. The, the America first message resonates. On the other hand, when they say America is going to go and send in troops and set the world to rights, they also support that. It's a very strange dynamic where it's sort of like the patriotism running up against the idea that we should spend money back at home. And so, you know, I don't think a lot of the ideological foreign policy preferences of his base are terribly fixed. And I think it's much more about Trump, quote unquote, winning. And so he could sell them on a Venezuela, you know, sort of pro-freedom. He, he might package it that way. And it could actually resonate in rural America. His base is splintering, though, because of other things. And that's why, you know, maybe he wants to change the message, as I said before. And surely also, surely also, it's because, you know, it is the Americas, you know, this is not another Vietnam, this is not Afghanistan, this is not, you know, Iraq. Mm. Um, you know, it's not not quite on the doorstep, but it's it's close enough for the uh, the base, as you as we've been calling it, um, to say, hey, you know, that's yeah, this is this is America. This is, um, yeah, you know, we need to do something about this. OK, so it's all in the spin. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, and my guest, Brian Klass and Stephen Deal. Coming up next, the former boss of the Starbucks coffee chain is thinking of standing as a candidate in the 2020 US presidential election. But is a billionaire businessman the ideal leader of a superpower? For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. 
As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. Still with me are Brian Class and Stephen Diel. Now, before we talk about billionaire businessmen leading superpowers, let's take a look at something a little bit closer to home. Now, a day before a crucial vote over Britain's plans to leave the European Union, the EU's deputy chief negotiator has warned that the country risks crashing out of Europe by accident. Now, on Tuesday, MPs will vote on a series of amendments to Theresa May's withdrawal bill, which recently got an almighty thumbs down in the biggest ever government defeat on the floor of the House of Commons. Meanwhile, for the thousands of EU citizens living in in the United Kingdom, this latest chapter in the ongoing saga that is Brexit has done little to assuage concerns over their future. And this has to be one of the main questions, I guess, above the horse trading, etc. that's going on, Stephen. It's whether Theresa May has really done enough to clarify the status of EU citizens living in the UK. Well, she gave them one carrot last week when uh, when she said that they, it was extraordinary. They announced on the news in the morning that um, EU citizens living in the UK could pay sixty five pounds uh, to register, and then they'd be they'd be okay. And later in the day, she said, "Oh, they won't have to pay." Um, so they'll, they'll be able to register, but they'll get in free uh, or they'll be able to stay free. Um, but I, I mean, I have a, a neighbour who's uh, who's German, but who's lived in this country for many, many years. Uh, and she is very, very worried about what's going to happen after. As I remember, ever since the vote, um, she said straight away, I don't feel welcome anymore. And I said, no, well, that's nonsense. Of course you are. Lovely lady, very intelligent and, and, and the, just the kind of person who brings so much to this country. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it, it is absolutely extraordinary. We must look so stupid to the rest of the world. You know, here we are. It's, you know, Groundhog Day just keeps coming on and on and on. I mean, I was in uh, on, on this programme a couple of weeks ago and, you know, we were talking about, guess what, a vote in the House of Commons um, <laughs> just before it happened. Uh, this was the big defeat, the biggest the big in modern defeat. parliamentary Absolutely, history. yeah. And, um, uh, you know, what rabbits are going to be pulled out of hats? I, I can't see it being radically different tomorrow night. Maybe, maybe I'll be wrong, but um, I also can't see us leaving the European Union on the 29th of March. I mean, it is absurd when you think how long this has gone on and they're still uh, talking about sort of fundamentals. I mean, the whole idea of it from the referendum itself, yes, no, shall we stay, shall we go, on such a complicated issue has, has been probably the worst chapter in British politics, certainly in my lifetime and probably for many years before that. And Brian, how is it perceived in the United States? Because speaking from the point of view of a Brit, I have to admit that some of the twists and turns are pretty darn complicated. It's trying to, it's almost like trying to separate strings of spaghetti. But how is it viewed in the United States, for example? Well, we appreciate every once in a while when the heat goes off us and goes back <laughs> on to Britain. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's we're sort of jockeying for position. I think usually Trump wins in the uh, sort of you know disastrous sweepstakes of politics, but every so often it looks pretty bad. So, no, I mean, I think look the the disaster that's looming is the No Deal Brexit, and the fact. I mean, as as Stephen said, we. We are so close to leaving, and we have no idea what is going to happen. It is just absurd. It's a fundamental reorientation of the entire economy, the security sector, everything. And yet there's no clarity for business, for anyone. And so, you know, 
from the American perspective, I think what's happening is if you if you were to talk to the average person on Main Street America, they don't have any idea what the difference between a no deal Brexit, a soft Brexit, a hard Brexit. Mm. They, they don't. It's not part of the conversation because Trump has sucked all of the life. <sighs> Out of politics. I mean, every single story in the US is about Trump. Although so, Trump himself actually supports the idea of Brexit. Yeah. He's, he's actually said, look, you know, there's great deals on the table once you guys break free of the rest of Europe. Yeah, but I mean, if, if, if British people fall for that, they, I mean, that is truly a stupid... It's, it's, just do not believe that and for a second that Trump would sacrifice anything to give Britain a good deal that he could not spin as an absolute trouncing in trade negotiations. I mean, it's the only way... It's like... He's got this reptile brain and the, no, I mean, seriously, though, I mean, it's the, it's, he has this reptilian brain and it's like, if I win, then I can claim victory. And if somebody punches back, I actually cave. I mean, it's like that was the first thing that happened with the shutdown. And with trade negotiations, he pushes very hard. And Britain is not going to have a situation where unless they push back hard, too, they're not going to get any anywhere with Donald Trump. He's not going to give a gift to, to the UK after Brexit. So. Okay, so basically, mind your back on this. But I mean, <laughs> look, Stephen, let, let's take it back to the to the to the experience of um, EU residents living living in this country. We know anecdotally that a lot of them do feel very insecure about their position. We also know that quite a few people are leaving or have left already. So is it too early to say what impact that absence is having on British life and indeed the British economy? It's we're beginning to see signs of it. I mean, you know, there are gaps in um, in, in workers in the health service. Um, they're, they're, I think we've seen enough to know that there will be serious problems um, that, you know, if if uh, you know, if I were from another EU country, um, I think, you know, I would be thinking, actually, I'd probably be better off going home. Um, and if, if I were doing a, you know, a crucial job, be it in the health service or whatever, then th- there's going to be significant numbers of people who, who think that. Um, you know, it is so unfair on them to have left this so late. Um, and let's look at it the other way around as well. Of course, there are significant numbers of, of Brits who live in Europe. And one thing which I thought at the time was outrageous was that they weren't given a vote in the referendum. I mean, they are they are British. It, they're affected far more by this than most people. Um, and they weren't even given the chance. So there is trouble ahead. I think we can say that for sure. OK, grim note on which to end that particular bit of the conversation. But let's move on now to the final story, because the former boss of the Starbucks coffee chain says he's, quote, seriously considering running for president in 2020. Howard Schultz, who stepped down from his job last year, said if he takes the plunge, he will stand as an independent. His announcement was criticised by Democratic presidential candidate Julian Castro, who said Mr Schultz could split the opposition vote. While the US president, Donald Trump, said he hoped that, quote, Starbucks is still paying me their rent in Trump Tower. He said other things as well, but that was the most uh, standout line. So really, the question goes to you, Brian. Do you think that Howard Schultz will stand and more to the point, does running an international coffee chain equip him for the responsibility of running the world's biggest economy? No. Um, <laughs> well, that summed it up really, yeah, didn't it? <laughs> I, I will elaborate, though. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these things where Schultz has no chance. He will, ne- As an independent candidate... Well, hang on, cannot, that's what they said about Donald Trump. No, but, but independent <laughs> candidates do not do... They, they're, they're not electable in the United States. The way the system is set up is for two parties. I mean, the highest percentage in modern history that an independent candidate got was in 1992 and it was around 19% with Ross Perot. So, you know, this is not, it's not a viable candidate. It's a vanity project. And 
Trump is sort of goading him. That tweet that you're referencing about the the rent, he says, you know, he doesn't have the guts to do it because Trump would be delighted to have Schultz in the race. Mm. He also said that Trump isn't as smart as him. Yes, which I mean, well, <laughs> oh, sorry, so Schultz isn't as smart as Trump, I should say. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but this is this is the only real path. If you were to hold the election right now against generic Democrat and Donald Trump, Donald Trump would lose. There was a there was a poll that said, "Will you definitely vote against Donald Trump?" And he had 57% said yes. I mean, that that is an impossible statistic if that were to hold up going into the election. The only possible way he could win the Electoral College, therefore, is to split the vote, siphon off votes from the Democrat into the independent run, and Schultz could actually do that. So it's why Democrats are extremely up in arms against this candidacy. Mm. But also, as, as well, Stephen, I mean, look, you've got Schultz, who said, I'm going to stand as an independent. We've got Michael Bloomberg, another billionaire who may stand for the Democrats. Look, all these other multi-billionaire rich guys are simply using their wealth to play at politics. And frankly, Aren't the public sick of this because these guys are elites because they got big fat wallets? One would hope so, really. Um, you know, thinking back, um, where I was sort of four years or so, when um, there was a decent human being in the White House. In fact, decent human being with a very decent wife as well. Um, you know, it, it, that seems I'm now. Referring to the, um, the Obamas, the, the Obamas. <laughs> well, what, I mean, what? A, you know, the, the more that their that their their time as 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 he as president has gone you know the the just the better they look i mean they they you know i wish i wish that she'd run for president because i think she'd get in but i think she's had enough of politics too um but i think that oh, rather no i hope that you know the the experience of trump will make enough americans think actually you know we need someone who does understand politics who does understand what needs to be done because you know what they've got at the moment is just disastrous i mean you know this this clown who who shoots his mouth off who's who never tells the truth um i was reminded i was talking to someone at the weekend and we were we were, we were discussing you know stalin said that you know one one death is a tragedy and, and a thousand is a statistic well it's the same with trump's lies you know one would be tragic but now they're just statistics oh dear on that sobering note that brings us to the end of today's show stephen deal and brian class thank you both so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Augustin Machelari, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri, and our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music next, but at 1900 hours, it's the Monocle Culture Show, and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Juliette Foster. Good.